Hey, how's it going? Great, glad to hear it. My name's Jeremy Ullman. I'm the host of this podcast, Abstract, colon, The Future of Science. So what's this all about? There are thousands upon thousands of graduate students all across the world, and I'm trying to tap into their knowledge they have gained in their research over the last one to seven years. We recorded this in the past, you're listening to it in the present, and you're learning about the future. So, what better time than now to enjoy a quick episode of Abstract. Hope you enjoy. Hey, welcome to Abstract. Before we hop into things, here's a quick list of the kind of questions you can expect to be answered on today's episode. So... What goes into vaccine design? How do we differentially target parasites versus viruses? What's so abnormal about COVID-19? What are the types, functions, and morphologies of antibodies? Hmm. And does our lymphatic system have a memory of its own, independent of the central nervous system? You'll find answers to these questions and many, many more on today's episode of Abstract. Buckle up, folks. Let's go. Audrey Kasarjan is a third-year PhD student in immunology at the University of Toronto, conducting research at the Hospital for Sick Children. Her current research on vaccine design in the Julien lab leverages principles of protein engineering and immunomodulation, with a focus on the molecular intricacies of antibody function. Though the first few years of her PhD were centered around the development of vaccines against malaria, her work has more recently pivoted towards the search for a COVID-19 vaccine, as part of the large movement led by the scientific community to address the ongoing pandemic. Beyond the lab, Audrey is a crossword puzzle and Jeopardy enthusiast, rest in peace Alex Trebek, and enjoys leisurely summer bike rides to local ice cream shops. Audrey is also an avid scuba diver and looks forward to continuing to explore the waters of our world, when it's safe to travel again, of course. Well, for now, she's not going anywhere. We got it right here in the studio. So without further ado, let's welcome Audrey to the podcast. Audrey, how's it going? Hi, Jeremy. It's really great to be here. Thanks so much for reaching out. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. And thank you for being here. I appreciate this. It's going to be a nice, nice, relaxing chat today. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, I currently live in Toronto, but I am here in Montreal over the holidays, which is very nice. We're within spitting distance. Absolutely. Today's going to be an episode like all other episodes where we are just extracting knowledge from you, Audrey, from your brain. Okay, you're going to be sharing with us your knowledge about the field that you work in. And I would love to maybe put your email in the description of this episode in case you uh, want people to start fielding questions to you. 100% absolutely. Please send me emails. Thank you. Excellent. Okay. You've said that your PhD has interestingly been kind of split two ways. You've worked on two different kinds of vaccines. First and foremost, I'd love to hear about some of the similarities and differences between what goes into vaccine design for malaria versus for something like COVID. How would you describe that? Yeah, absolutely. So I started my PhD in the fall of 2018. So pretty much fall of 2018 to March of this year, I was working on a vaccine against malaria. Malaria and COVID-19 are two completely different diseases, which are caused by two completely different pathogens. Malaria is caused by a parasite, 
and COVID-19 is caused by a virus called SARS-CoV-2. It should be known that there are no licensed vaccines against parasites, so that's a complete first, and a search for a malaria vaccine has been in the works for over 30 years without significant success, and even the leading vaccine in clinical trials right now isn't a slam dunk, let's say. It's partial protection that is short-lived, but it's the best we have for now, so that's what we're going with for now. On the other hand, COVID-19 is the complete opposite, right? Very rapid emergence, has been around for a very short period of time, is caused by, again, a different type of pathogen, which is virus. So all of the building blocks that go into building that vaccine are completely different. And the goals of the vaccine as well, some are similar, but there are a lot of differences in what we want to achieve with those vaccines. So the mechanisms are presumably completely different then. If it's taken us you know, over three decades to produce some semblance of a vaccine against parasites, yet in, you know, what, like 12 to 16 months, even less, we've been able to come up with multiple different vaccines for, for COVID-19 or what we can just call in general a virus. What yeah. is it that's so difficult about parasites? Why can't we figure them out? Oh, man, I, I don't know. They've just been escaping our grasp for all these years. One thing that significantly helped the very rapid development of a COVID-19 vaccine is the abundance of funding, abundance of, you know, disease incidence in the general population, which enables us to advance those clinical trials a lot faster than usually they would. So I, I wouldn't necessarily ask the question, what is taking us so long with malaria, which, of course, is an important question, but it's, it's really applauding the speed at which the COVID-19 vaccines were developed. Okay, so the abnormality here isn't the slow, sluggish nature of developing the parasite vaccine, but the incredible speed with which we produce one for a virus. Is what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. The search for malaria vaccine has been longer and more arduous than the search for many other vaccines, but I think really the abnormality here is the COVID-19 speed. Interesting. That's a great abnormality. I'm pretty happy <laughs> that that we have created this abnormality here. And I guess you're definitely right. The, you know, money definitely plays a role. Do you think with, let's say, infinite money supplies, we would have been able to come up with a malaria vaccine much sooner? Or are there other barriers here? There are tons of barriers, a, a very important of which, and one which is the focus of my research, is the biological barriers to actually making an effective vaccine. And there are lots of research programs around the world that are working on this, that are trying to see how we can address the shortcomings of the current vaccine that is leading the field. And yet, despite all of our efforts, there are still significant barriers in actually achieving those protective immune responses that should be elicited by a vaccine. I, I'm just really curious, and now that it's kind of been the subject of the first part of your PhD research, if you were developing a vaccine, what exactly were you working on? Right, that begs the question, what is in a vaccine? So a pathogen is composed of many different parts. You know, you have your nucleic acids, your proteins, your lipids, all that good stuff. I personally in my lab work on protein vaccines. And so in this malaria vaccine, we're putting a protein that is derived from the surface of the parasite. And this protein is called circumsporozoic protein or CSP. CSP, got it. This is a protein that exists on the skin of the parasite or like the, yeah. the, the outer membrane. All right. Like the slimy outer body of the parasite. 
Interesting. Do humans have proteins on their surface? Yeah, absolutely. Humans are protein. Okay, tell me more. Proteins are what makes our bodies function, right? So we know the um, central dogma of biology, DNA goes to RNA, goes to protein. And all those protein is what enables your body to function. So are the proteins on the surface of my skin then, like that would be able to be harvested such as we're doing with the parasites? Yeah, probably. Okay, we're speaking theoretically here. Your skin proteins probably wouldn't be an attractive target for a vaccine against you because your skin proteins are probably very important, but they're not critical to your function. However, Mm. the circumsporozoic protein, or CSP, on the surface of the parasite is absolutely critical for their viability and function. And so if we're able to target this protein and neutralize this protein, then we neutralize the parasite. That's crazy. That's such a, an evolutionary disadvantage for the parasite. Yeah, just like absolutely. having your, your greatest weakness just on the surface of your body. Could you imagine if like my lungs were just dangling from my elbows? That would be Yikes, terrible. Dude. Right? Big if my yes. heart was like where my earlobes were, you know, it would just be so easy for like a large gust of wind or a hailstorm to just totally wreck my visceral organs. Yeah. And it's, uh, we don't, Totally understand the evolutionary biology behind it, but there's obviously an advantage and a disadvantage to having that protein out on its surface exposed. Okay, can we dive into the CSP specifically? Tell me about this protein. What are its properties? Apart from the fact that you said it's vital to the life of the parasite, what are we doing with this protein once we have it in our grasp? So to talk about why CSP is so important, I think it's important to talk about what antibodies are. And maybe I can go into more depth about antibodies a little bit later. But basically, antibodies can be very good or antibodies can be very bad. And by that, I mean antibodies can be protective against infection or disease, or they can just not be functional at all. And so it is known that antibodies that target CSP on the surface of the parasite can be very good at preventing infection and disease. These are human antibodies we're talking about, right? Fighting the parasite. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of disease models for malaria. There are a lot of antibodies of various species that have been discovered, but we have been able to isolate a lot of human antibodies from ongoing malaria clinical trials that have enabled us to determine this. Do we all just have antibodies against malaria or do those only develop when we get the virus itself as a reaction? Yeah, so unless you have been previously infected with malaria, you don't have the antibodies circulating in your body. Those antibodies arise when you first get infected with the pathogen. But you do have the cells that will eventually make the antibodies should you be infected with the pathogen. So you have the building blocks, but you don't have the antibodies. Hey folks, two things I want to mention first break. Number one, I want to know what your 2021 goals are. I'm not talking New Year's resolutions. I'm talking big life goals. In the second break, you'll hear where you can send that information in terms of contacts, etc. Second of all, I want to tell you what kind of podcast I've been listening to. So these are the Weekly Call podcast, Lexicon Valley with John McWhorter, Abstract, The Future of Science with myself. Yes, I do listen to my own podcast. The Sporkful with Dan Pashman, Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel, Ologies with Ali Ward, and Trained with Ryan Flaherty. And now more from Audrey. So when we get infected with malaria, we're actually not already prepared to handle it. We just start manufacturing 
the requisite antibodies. That's because we're just going into like war disaster mode. Yeah, totally. So as you actually encounter the pathogen for the first time, you're not prepared to fight it off. But that first week time frame is tremendously important for you to build those defenses to eventually be able to fight it off. Okay. So when you're designing a vaccine against malaria, what's the first step? There are many different types of vaccines, which would each start at a different starting point. But a really good starting point would be the genetic sequence of your target. So for instance, in this case, we know the DNA sequence that encodes CSP. And then from that genetic sequence, you can synthetically produce CSP in the lab. You don't even have to work with the pathogen in the lab. You could just make the protein and not work with any viral agents. And from there, you can do many in vitro assays, that is, in tubes, in a test tube. Yeah, we've actually had a, a number of guests who've already spoken about DNA synthesis. So for those of you who want to go back and check that out, please do. So we, we, we can kind of, you know, gloss over the actual mechanisms, maybe. So you're saying that we can identify the protein on the surface of the parasite. We can then actually sequence the genome, or we could sequence the DNA that creates this protein, and then we can create that protein ourselves. That's correct. Once we have that protein, what are we doing with it? This like synthesized protein. Are we shaking its hand? Are, are, are we waving hello? Are, are we shooting it into space? The first step after we synthetically produce the protein in the lab is usually in vitro characterization, a lot of which is biophysical in our case. So in a lot of the cases, we're going to aim to solve the crystal structure of the protein to look at the way it folds and determine which amino acids are actually exposed out on the surface of the protein. And these particular residues or amino acids might be interesting targets for antibody binding. We can also determine the affinity of various antibodies to this protein, which might be an indicator of which antibodies could be protective against infection. We can determine how many antibody molecules are able to bind a single protein molecule. What's the ratio there? Ultimately, we want to test the immune response elicited against this protein, and this is usually done in animal models. A lot of the time, this occurs in an iterative cycle to continually improve the design of your vaccine. So you can first try testing the whole protein as it occurs naturally on the surface of the parasite and look at the immune response elicited. It might be good. It might not be so good. So there you have an opportunity to improve your vaccine design by modifying your protein. Then you can test this new vaccine design in an animal model and see whether the modifications actually improve the immune response and protection against infection. Mm -hmm. Okay, because this, this immune response is what you were calling antibodies before, right? Yeah. Our immune response is the production of those. Yeah. And that's what we want, right? Yeah, absolutely. And most, if not all, vaccines that are currently licensed to date have been reliant on the presence of antibodies that are circulating in the body. Antibodies in the body. Antibodies in the body. Okay. So... To bring this back to the comparison between COVID and malaria, both of these vaccines are based on antibodies. Yes or no? Yes, although the immune mechanisms aren't totally understood. And there is a very important component of T cells to generating those antibody responses. Immune responses are so beautifully coordinated. It's a very sophisticated system with a lot of different parts, which are acting cooperatively 
And so to get an, a good antibody response, you need everything else from the immune response. You need all the other components to be able to mount that good antibody response. Can we just briefly overview what is encompassed in the immune response with a capital T, capital I, capital R? Yeah. So the immune response is divided into two stages. The innate immune response, which is the immune response that happens immediately after you encounter the pathogen until you can activate your adaptive immune response, which is the second part of the immune response. And the adaptive immune response comes a little bit later and is the part of the immune response which can develop memory. And memory is what's going to protect you from reinfection in case you encounter the pathogen again. Does that make sense? Yeah, what kind of memory are we talking about here? Because I had a great discussion on episode 18 with Jamie Snight about episodic memory, but these are memories stored in our brain, presumably. The memory right. you're talking about is not in my brain, so where is it? Yeah, this memory is completely unknown to you, to your brain, let's say, to, your, to the person that you are. But this memory is usually stored in your lymph nodes and your immune organs that are spread across your body. What are the immune organs, by the way, just so I know? Well, you have your lymph nodes. The lymph nodes themselves are spread throughout the body. The spleen is a big lymphoid organ. You have your bone marrow, your thymus, which are the origins of a lot of immune cells. So you're pretty much covered all around in case you encounter a pathogen again. Cool. So the memory is, is like is stored in this network of lymph nodes around my body. Yeah, exactly. All the hard drives everywhere in the body. That's crazy. That's crazy. That reminds me of um, the octopus. The octopus actually has a nervous system that extends through all of its tentacles, which is kind of crazy. So each of them can actually operate independently. I'm pretty sure this is true. That's amazing. Uh, please, again, fact Everybody check me on fact this. Everybody fact check listeners. that. <laughs> yeah, I, I read a book about octopuses. By the way, you could call it octopuses, not just octopi. Both are valid. Great book called Other Minds. Anyways, I'll maybe put a, a link to that book in the description later. So having, having a, a kind of memory permeate our body, that's kind of a mind blow. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very intricate system that has been a critical component for our survival throughout the ages. Are humans unique in, in having this lymphatic memory? Have we identified this kind of thing in other species? Is this found all across the animal kingdom? I would tend to say so. I know of very little organisms that do not have an immune system. And that immune system can vary from species to species. But I would tend to say that most animals can elicit immune memory. Excellent. Okay. So maybe we can dial in a little bit more to the protein engineering side of things here, because you did mention that this is one of the key aspects of your PhD. So we've spoken about the CSP, which is mm -hmm. the protein on the surface of the parasite in the case of malaria. In COVID, is there a protein we're specifically focusing on? Yes, absolutely. That protein is called the spike glycoprotein, which is present on the surface of the virus, which I'm sure you've heard a lot of. We've heard of the spike protein. Is spike like an acronym or is, does it look like a spike? And then that's why we call it that. No, it's not an acronym at all. It looks like a spike on the surface. Basically, when they observed the virus under the electron microscope, they noticed that it looked like a crown, hence the name Corona coronavirus. Fun fact for y'all. I'm imagining the crown that has those little like pointy spires on them. These are kind of like the spike proteins we're talking about. Yeah, kind of. It's a flat image and it basically looks like a circle 
with spikes coming out of it. Got it. And these spikes are the spike protein. That is the major target of vaccines. Okay. So we've identified the spike protein on the surface of COVID, much like we identified CSP on the surface of parasites and malaria. You said there's there are some really fundamental differences between malaria and COVID. Let's focus more on COVID for now. This is quite relevant, at least for the time we're living in now. If you're listening right now and it's the future, hi, the future, then maybe COVID isn't a thing anymore. But in terms of the protein engineering side of things, what are you actually doing now with the spike proteins once you've identified that they exist now? Is it the same kind of process as we said before, where you're trying to synthesize them outside and do tests? Yeah, absolutely. So what my lab does a lot of is just producing these proteins synthetically so that we can test them in vitro or in animal models later down the line with modifications that perhaps could improve the immune response to that specific protein. Basically, my specific project that pertains to COVID-19 involves fusing the spike protein to an antibody that's going to target it to specific immune cells to more effectively launch an immune response. So basically in the body, your immune cells, if they just see a protein, they have to detect that protein. But what if they didn't have to be constantly sampling their environment? What if the protein could directly come to them and be targeted to them? And so that is sort of the general theme of my COVID-19 vaccine project. Whoa, okay. I like that overview. So normally the immune response seeks out the pathogen. But in this yeah. case, you're trying to reverse that process. Yeah, so you have immune cells everywhere in your body that are just constantly sampling the environment, that are constantly saying, is everything okay? Are we at homeostasis? Is there something wrong? Is there an intruder? And from that constant sampling, they're able to quickly react if there is something that is abnormal in the body. Could we discuss in great detail, this because this will not be specific to your PhD, but in great detail antibody function. You did mention much earlier that we could potentially get into the uh, into the weeds here with antibody function. So let's let's go there. So antibodies can function a number of different ways. The first of which is we call it neutralization. And basically neutralization is the ability of antibodies to bind their target and prevent the biological function of their target. So for instance, if a neutralizing antibody binds the spike glycoprotein, then the spike glycoprotein won't be able to enter host cells because it's the protein that basically binds the receptor on host cells. But if it's neutralized by an antibody, it won't be able to do that. And for the purpose of vaccines, these neutralizing antibodies are one of the main readouts of an effective antibody response. Now, antibodies have a lot of complementary functions, such as antibody-dependent cell cytotoxicity and complement fixation and all that, which really are additional functions that are not specific to binding to the pathogen target. So what do these things do? Like, we don't need to go into the detail of, of each one specifically, but if you're not attacking the target, you're just dancing around it and doing like a little little something-something? So that's super interesting. And that goes back to sort of the structure of an antibody, which is kind of a Y-shaped molecule. At the two ends of the Y, those are the antigen binding fragments. So those are the fragments of the antibody that are going to bind to your pathogen target. Okay. An antibody can interact with the target pathogen, but an antibody can also interact with every other immune component in the body. So 
while antibodies can just bind to a pathogen and neutralize it, it's even more effective if the antibody binds to the target and then is able to bring it to an immune cell that will then clear it from the body completely. Those interactions of antibodies with both target proteins on the surface of pathogens and the other components of the immune system is what is going to be able to effectively respond to a target pathogen. Hey folks, it's Jeremy. Once again, asking for your feedback. Woo! What else is new? All right, I'm going to make it super explicit today. Here's where you can send your juicy, delicious, much-needed, much-appreciated feedback. First and foremost, Facebook. Check us out. Facebook.com slash AbstractCast. Instagram at AbstractCast. There's also Twitter, Abstract underscore Cast. There's also email, AbstractCast at gmail.com. Any of these platforms would be amazing. I'd love to hear from you so much. Thank you. Seriously, you don't know how much this is going to improve not only my experience as the host, but your experience as the listener. Thanks so much. Okay, enjoy the rest of the episode. So in my mind, before you just said what you said, the antibodies were kind of like the the jacks of all trades here, but they're not. You're saying that the antibodies can actually kind of approach and interact with the target, but then they actually have to kind of guide the target towards the part of the immune system that will actually then eliminate them. Yeah, absolutely. Can antibodies eliminate things? Because you said that they can neutralize, but that just kind of seems like a Band-Aid fix. Yeah, so if you just neutralize, then it's great, then that target protein has no more biological function, it's kind of just floating around and it can't do anything. But you do need some other immune cells, namely phagocytes, to come in and totally clear that foreign protein from your body. Let's say you had an immune complex of COVID with its spike proteins on it, and all the spike proteins were neutralized by antibodies. And that thing's just kind of floating mindlessly through your bloodstream. What happens over time to that binary system of antibody and protein complex. Does the antibody eventually dissolve away and then COVID can reemerge? Or are they both eternally bonded forever and ever in holy matrimony? It's very unlikely that the antibody will dissociate from the virus just because of the fact that if it bound in the first place, it had to have pretty high affinity to it. And that gigantic complex is unlikely to stay in the circulation for a very long time, namely because you have all of these immune cells everywhere in your body that are going to detect it very quickly to clear it. Okay, excellent. So that's antibodies. Are they all Y-shaped or do we have special antibodies that are not? That is a very good question, Jeremy. (laughs) There are five different classes of antibodies. There are the IgGs, IgAs, IgEs, IgDs, and IgMs, most of which are in a simple Y shape, where you have two antigen binding sites for each antibody molecule. But you do have variants on this. For instance, IgMs, where you actually have, close your eyes and imagine, five of these Y shaped molecules that are are connected at the bottom. And so basically you have this kind of planar circle, which has 10 different antigen binding sites instead of just two for one antibody molecule. I can see it. And so through this multimerization of antigen binding sites, then you can bind more antigen at a time or bind multiple antigens at a time. And it just serves a different function. 
I'm picturing just like a wheel of antibodies. Essentially, that is exactly what that is. Yeah, like spokes. Yeah, kind of. You said it was like a planar yeah. kind of molecule, right? So think 2D, not 3D. Yeah, yeah, 2D. So, I mean, a right. wheel is essentially kind of like a two-dimensional yeah. object, right? Yeah. What's the benefit of being in that kind of conglomerate shape? So basically, this higher dimension structure of IgMs enables them to bind antigen at multiple sites because they have so many more antigen binding sites than just a single antibody molecule. And that structure that is generated by this tenfold binding, let's say, generates a structure that is advantageous for a process called complement fixation. And complement fixation is a process that enables the rapid clearance of these immune complexes that we were talking about, of these antibodies that are complex with antigen. Right. So they're just doing a better job than the, than the single Y. Yeah, they just do a better job at that particular function. Right. Okay. No, it isn't like the whole immune response is all about complement fixation. Just that's one of the things we do, and it is best performed by this five times yeah. antibody complex. Pentameric. Yeah. Pentameric. Absolutely. Excellent. Basically, different antibody types serve different functions, and they're all the best at doing something different. And all of these functions together help to build an effective immune response. Awesome. Yeah. I love it. It's just like, I'm a big fan of the intersectional nature of study and academics with a cognitive science background. I was all about bringing together multiple fields to apply really interesting ideas, kind of cross-disciplinarily. And so the same thing's kind of happening in our immune system. We can't just have one kind of antibody. We can't just have one kind of function. This is a very dynamic system that accomplishes many different tasks that keep us alive and have kept humans alive for hundreds of thousands of years. 100%. That, that is exactly correct. Well put. Okay, cool. Very complicated stuff going on at the basic level, at the level of molecules and proteins. This is why biology has kind of eluded me for a long time and why I love having guests on who are experts in this field because it's just, it's just magical for me every time. So you're working on vaccine design. To me, that's the preliminary part of the entire life span of a vaccine right in terms of getting it actually into somebody's veins yeah absolutely right? it's uh the very first step you got to make the vaccine yeah so so you said it's, it's the first step obviously there's some research that has to happen before that but once you do the vaccine design thing where does the vaccine go after that like what's the next step who are you handing off the vaccine design to once we make the vaccine then again as I previously mentioned, we do those in vitro assays, those in vivo assays, we test the vaccine in animal models. And typically, um, after that, if you get a lot of funding, you can go into human clinical trials. Got it. So in glass, and then in animals, and then in humans. Yeah, And then essentially. the general public gets it. Yeah, essentially, yeah. that's how it goes. Cool. Yeah, we spoke about a very similar process on the episode about epidemiology. Uh, with Adam Palio, I believe episode 23. So feel free to check that out, folks, if you're more interested in kind of the timeline of rolling out something like a vaccine. To kind of travel back in time a little bit again to our previous discussion before today, you mentioned this, we're, we're taking a quick deviation, by the way, away from the research for a second. You mentioned that two things that are very important aspects of your life are mentorship and also your work ethic. 
I'd love to hear a little bit more about how these two things have made you who you are and maybe what roles they play in your life. So my PhD lab is the second lab that I've ever been in. I was in one lab previously in my undergraduate at McGill University, Dr. Brian Ward, who is a wonderful mentor, tremendously successful as well, and is extremely knowledgeable. And I really appreciated working with him initially due to his expertise in vaccinology and vaccine design and development. And then going to the University of Toronto for my PhD, I encountered a totally different style of mentorship where my current supervisor, Dr. Jean-Philippe Julien, is perhaps one of the newer principal investigators at the institution where he's established his lab about five or six years ago. So he's still working very hard. And what I really feel from him is that he is very, very invested in my personal success. He's not already super duper established in the field. You know, he's not dominating the field completely. Mm -hmm. And so he knows that the success of his students and his postdocs directly impacts his own. But he is tremendously successful, you know, very high honors and awards, publishes in the highest impact journals. It's really very inspiring. And despite all of this, I go in to work every day feeling like I'm putting in a lot of work. I'm putting in a lot of effort. But however much I put in, he's putting it three times as much. And he's doing it for himself and he's doing it for me. So he's just a great role model. Yeah, in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I think it's a great thing that you're working for somebody who, like you're saying, while they have all the accolades and the intellect and the drive, they're still new. And so you're both kind of in a similar similar boat in terms of, of being new to something, right? You're three years into your PhD, and he is, you know, five or six years into his lab. So still fledgling academics at, at your own levels, which is awesome. I yeah. think that that's great. And there definitely is something to be said for being able to connect to somebody who's in a similar situation to you. And having previously had experience working with a supervisor who who had actually become a full professor while I was working with him, the, the amount of time maybe kind of varies, right? And the focuses are potentially more spread out and the name is already more established. Yeah, I do find with the more established PIs that have had tenure for, let's say, 30 years, they travel a lot, they're not around most of the time maybe, and maybe you're only interacting with them through a postdoc. Um, so you don't get a lot of that personal contact. And that personal contact is really what I've appreciated these past three years in JP's ability to mentor me at every step of the way. That's great. That's awesome. What do you think would be your greatest strength as a mentor? What do you bring to the table that maybe somebody else wouldn't? I think, well, you can ask others, but I think that I'm very relatable. And I think that I do a good job at remembering how I felt and how I was doing when I, when I was in that same position. Because essentially, that's what a mentorship is, right? You're just leading someone through something you've lived through before. So I think I do a good job at remembering how that felt and how that was and applying those specific perspectives or that specific knowledge to their situation. Cool. Okay. So this brings us to our final question. You can interpret this either in terms of academics or just as a general question about life. Picture yourself at the foot of a giant auditorium that seats a thousand people and it's packed to the brim. You have their undivided attention. What do you tell them? 
I would tell them, be careful where you get your information. That goes for both the general population and scientists. I think as scientists, we always take it for granted that we have the correct information because we are the experts. But take what you know with a grain of salt and try to continually improve what you know. And if you're not a scientist and you are a part of the general population, I strongly suggest that you do get your information from scientists. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Audrey Kasarjan is telling you to be careful where you're getting your info. So this is great. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Audrey. This was really nice chatting. I appreciate it. And I mean, look, halfway through the PhD, we've got a tremendous amount of research and development that's going to be going on in the next few years. So I hope to actually stay in touch and potentially have you back on the podcast as you're wrapping it up. Maybe you'll be working on the next pandemic. Oh, you know what? That's not impossible. So stay at home, wash your hands, wear your mask, all that good stuff. We love to hear it. Please don't travel too much and it'll be okay. It's going to be okay. Awesome. It is going to be okay. And happy new year to everybody. Uh, It's probably about mid-January at this point. So thank you so much for popping into today's episode of Abstract. Good night, good afternoon, or good morning. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard, you can check us out at abstractcast on Instagram. If you have any feedback, please feel free to leave a comment on the post for the current or any previous episode that you might have listened to. Or if you're a graduate student and you would like to be on the podcast yourself, you can drop us a line at abstractcast at gmail.com. This podcast will be released weekly on Sundays and is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much everywhere else you're going to find podcasts. So feel free to check us out around the internet. Until then, take it easy.